Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bear's Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering gourmet pizzas, hot submarine sandwiches, and salads with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com, 332-4495 for delivery. Good afternoon. It is Friday, March 26th, and this is Noon Edition with co-host Daniel Robison. I am Stan Jastrzewski, and we will be talking today about education policy as it was affected by this year's legislative session. And before we're done with our hour today, we will talk a little bit hopefully about what we expect and what our experts more importantly expect to see in next year's legislative session. Joining us in studio today are Jonathan Plucker. He is the uh, the director of Indiana University's Center for Evaluation and Education Policy and South Harrison School District Superintendent Neelan Clark. Thanks, guys, for being here. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. So I wanted to ask you, first of all, whether you thought the the legislature this year could have done more than it did. There were a number of things that were talked about. Some of them went through. Some of them didn't. We'll get into specifics as we move on in today's program. But I wanted to, to get uh, your impression and uh, Jonathan, I'll start with you. Where in terms of effectiveness do you rank this year's legislative session? Well, um, you know, it was the uh, short session this year um, and uh, I remember when a state superintendent, Dr. Reed, um, used to talk about the short session. Uh, she used to you, um, always say only half jokingly. Uh, that her goal for the short session was to make sure that we did no harm. Um, uh, it's uh, people can get really excited during those short sessions uh, and uh, uh, create create problems for ourselves. And I don't think really any harm was done. Um, I think certainly giving the school districts flexibility on on spending across categories was just critically important. Um, uh, and it, it really looked like until the very last minute that might not actually happen. So that, that was actually a very important accomplishment. Um, there's lots of wrangling between the parties about whose plan was better to do that. Um, I don't think anyone in schools really cared. Um, uh, we, just, we just needed to give them spending flexibility because of all these problems that we have with financing. Um, so I think that's, that, that was really the major accomplishment. Um, uh, there, you know, there, there's always talk about you know more choice, more charters, less choice, less charters. That's fought every single session. Um, uh, that's really not a battle they needed to be wasting time on this time around. And uh, for the most part, they didn't. So I, um, I'm not going to give them an A, um, uh, but um, I, I think uh, it certainly was a do no harm sort of session from my perspective. Dr. Clark? I guess I would concur with Jonathan. You know, as, as superintendents and educators across the state, we were looking at uh, hopefully, hopefully a little relief from the uh, financial stress placed on our districts through the formula. But uh, like Jonathan said, you know, up until the very end, we weren't really sure that we were going to have the flexibility of uh, transferring funds and making some of those adjustments within our individual budget. So, uh, you know, we, we too were looking at trying to get out of the session without getting hurt too much at this point. And uh, for the most part, I think, you know, the legislature did their job, but um, I wouldn't give them an A, but I wouldn't give them a failing grade either. So, What would this flexibility uh, allow you guys to do in, in real terms? Uh, Dr. Clark? Well, in terms of uh, the general fund restrictions that we have, and that's where the governor and the Dr. Bennett's uh, citizen checklist comes into play. There's a lot of concern regarding uh, uh, the new funding mechanism in terms of what it does to our general fund. Um, we have uh, districts across the state, like the state budget, that are, have major shortfalls. Um, and we don't really accomplish a lot by pointing fingers. Uh, that's really uh, a beast that's created by the economy, uh, where our state uh, fits in terms of the national economy. Um, but what it does for local school districts, it allows us to make adjustments from um, our capital projects fund. If we have some extra funding there, 
perhaps we can tighten our belts a little bit and move over and protect some of our educational programs within within the classrooms and within the school. So it became paramount toward the end of the session when we realized that we were not going to get any type of relief from the financial cuts that we have the flexibility to protect some of those programs. Why wasn't that flexibility already there? And why were they reluctant to give it to you? Well, I think first of all, um, it's not there by virtue of state statute and the State Board of Accounts uh, procedural requirements that school districts go through, and those are those are good things. I mean, I, we don't we don't negate that. But I think the other part of it is is that we have a we have a funding mechanism that was tied to property tax and shifted, and we have a. Uh, expenditure mechanism within our systems where we pay our administrators and we pay our teachers based on uh, the number of years and the, uh, they've been in the business and so forth. And it's almost um, we have built-in uh, increases to our expenditure at a time where revenues have fallen short. And so uh, the legislature, the governor, Dr. Bennett, and school officials across the state are trying to make those adjustments. Yeah, I think I think it's important to take a longer term um, view here, uh, especially when a school districts um, are feeling so much financial pain. Um, it, it's really easy to sit and point fingers and say, "Why did this happen now?" Um, but this was actually a problem um, where the foundation was really laid a few years ago when we saw all those property tax revolts, primarily in about six or seven different communities. Um, uh, the state decided to uh, to really allow property taxes to go down, and just about everyone in this entire state saw very big property tax decreases. Um, well, that's how we pay for schools in this state for the most part. So the state assumed all of that responsibility, but then they moved um, from property taxes, which is just about the most stable form of income to sales taxes, which is just about the least stable form, um, uh, pretty much at the height of the bubble. Um, so the timing really was just horrible. That's no one's fault. Those things happen. Um, but when they did that, they really created a structural deficit, um, probably of more than $300 million, which is a lot of money. Um, and that was before we saw sales tax revenue decline so sharply. Um, so this was predictable to a point um, and I certainly give uh, um, the state credit for building back that reserve that, that we had lost in the previous recession. Um, but at the same time, they created a structural deficit that was huge, um, which really, they sort of canceled each other out. Um, add in a huge economic bubble bursting, um, a much less stable form of revenue – um, and school districts were going to be hit very, very hard. I don't think anyone saw it being this hard. Um, uh, but you know, again, uh, these choices that people make about how schools are funded, uh, those are important choices. And I, I don't think enough people realized what it was now two or three years ago um, that that shift from really the state picking up the tab and moving it to sales taxes, uh, that actually um, was almost certainly going to produce something like this eventually. Um, we can't look at these things in isolation. You can join our program today by calling 812-855-0811 or you can call us toll-free from anywhere at 877-285-9348. You can also visit our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition and you can leave a comment for us there. It's interesting that the two of you are saying that this funding flexibility was an important thing because we had a couple of superintendents in here a few weeks ago, among them J.T. Koopman from MCCSC, who said, well, you know, sure now we can take up to 10 percent of this money and we can move it over. But the problem with that is we have to forego pay raises and the teachers unions are going to be loath to do that. And so really what has the state given us was their their point of view and they thought that um, A, that's a problem and B, what money do we now have left over in a rainy day fund in a lot of places that we could even move over into classroom expenditures even if we wanted to? And so their position was you have this double-edged sword and you don't you, – you, you either can't do it or you won't be allowed to do it. I mean is that a fair criticism? 
Well, you know, uh, when JT came in and was talking, we were probably at that time in the middle of the legislative session, and we were still hoping that there would be some revenues there to uh, clearly, based on our economic uh, and budgetary forecast, we do not have the money to support some of these uh, initiatives. Um, my take on it is a little bit of something's better than all of nothing. And uh, I, I don't mean to be trite about that, but but in reality, if if we have what we have, and I have some flexibility, I can try to make it work for what the uh, state superintendent, what the governor has in mind. Keep keep also uh, focused on the fact that local superintendents have a, a legal responsibility to serve the children within their school district, and so that's our first and foremost responsibility. Um, it is a budget reduction for most superintendents in the state and it is a budget reallocation of resources within house because we're not getting new funds. Um, sure, I would like to give my, my teachers raises. Teachers across the state for the most part do an excellent job contrary to some people's opinion but uh, and administrators as well. But we are all suffering. You know, it's awful hard to take this initiative out to the private sector when CEOs and companies are having layoffs and they're taking reductions in salary and benefits and then say, well, gee, we want to raise. Um, we're all in this together as a state. And so um, the flexibility became very paramount once we realized there was no new resources coming coming out of Indianapolis. And I think it's really important to note <clears throat> excuse me, that um, – uh, state uh, revenue um, uh, forecasts uh, are still way off. Um, uh, the previous two months were still about $150 million under um, the different projections and those projections had been reduced numerous times. Um, we, we still are not coming out of this thing yet. Um, so I actually think there's probably at least another round of uh, severe cuts and, and I think unfortunately we're going to see it K through 12, higher ed, um, I don't think it will be as severe as the last round, but uh, there is no question that this isn't over yet. And one of the things that uh, Dr. Bennett talked with us in, in December uh, was that we were looking at a cut. The, the other problem with this reduction is it came in the middle of a budgetary year. Most superintendents and school people have a forecast that gives them a little bit of a warning track to prepare their budgets. We got hit in the middle of our budget and notified January that our revenues were going to be reduced immediately. So that's that's another component of this. Uh, as Jonathan indicated back when we met with Dr. Bennett in December, he was giving indication that school budgets across the state would probably recede back to the level of 2006. So immediately all of us went home and started looking at our budgets in 2006 and how much money we had received receded from 2006 to present date because that's pretty much the reduction we're going to be looking at come 2010, 2011, so forth. Uh, Jonathan, earlier you said uh, you know, schools, they got cut by $300 million and uh, the, the shift from uh, property taxes to state sales tax created kind of a hole. Did schools suffer their fair share amount if everyone's going to get cut? Every, every agency has gotten cut a bit here in the state. Did schools suffer disproportionately or did they get a fair cut? Um, uh, <laughs> um, uh, I'm sure I won't get in any trouble for answering that question. <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know, I'm up two minds on that, I have to be honest. Um, uh, uh, I think that uh, you need to give the state some credit in that pretty much the last cut they made was to K-12. Uh, they cut higher ed right away um, a couple times now. Um, we, we have certainly felt that pinch on this campus. Um, state government in general, uh, they took an axe to. Um, uh, and so they, they, they really did hold off as long as they could, I think. Uh, there was no question that this was coming. Um, and I, I, I do take some of the posturing by some school boards and some superintendents um, who, are act, uh, who are acting very offended by it. Um, I mean, I mean, did you really think that K-12 schools, which is what over half of the state budget, weren't going to feel any pain during this horrible, horrible recession? Um, uh, I mean, uh, uh, that said, uh, when the cuts did come, they were pretty severe, um, which they had to be. Uh, again, it's a huge portion of state expenditures. Um, 
Uh, I am worried that because of that structural deficit and the next wave of funding cuts that I, I really am almost certain are going to come, um, I think we are going to be cutting into the bone a little bit. Um, you know, from the university's perspective, I think the university is probably going to take another round of cuts here too. And I think those are really going to hurt next time around. Uh, I think in general, people have pretty much responded um, successfully to it. People have tried to be creative. People have tried to save jobs. Um, but I just don't know if we're going to be able to do that moving forward, especially if there's a second wave. And Dr. Clark may feel a little differently about that. Well, the only thing that I would say is that um, in talking about the the boards and the superintendents and school officials that maybe felt a little bit offended by the cut, um, part of that may be in in response to the fact that along these reductions, school officials were hearing that uh, pre-K-12 would be spared, you know, and and I think the governor and Dr. Bennett and others were very sincere in the fact that they were trying to spare pre-K-12. Um, but as, as Jonathan has indicated, when you have the economic uh, uh, landscape that we have, as severe as it is, um, it's really unrealistic to think that we, we are not going to take our hit. Yeah. Is it worthwhile to to say that legislators could do something simply by admitting they made a mistake in terms of how schools are funded and and is part of this problem the the attitude that the legislature and the governor can't say we screwed up and we should have especially in a time of economic uncertainty left what everybody of any political stripe agrees that is, as you said, Jonathan, the most stable funding source. Um, and, and is there some reason to go back to them in next year's session and say, you still have the ability to right this mistake? Um, I mean, I think it's important to keep in mind that to an elected official, uh, long term is between the day you're talking to them and the next election. Um, they have a very different short-term versus long-term perspective and that's the world in which they live. So but we, would it we not be politically that, expedient but. to say, look, I as a politician am going to admit I made a mistake and try to serve you, my constituents, better? I don't, I don't know if politicians are allowed to do that. Um, but um, it uh, – uh, I think what's going to happen, uh, I, I think uh, that, that's, that's never going to happen. I would love to see it happen personally. It's never going to happen. Uh, I think we're going to see that happen de facto the hard way and that school districts are going to try to put referenda in place to go do it themselves. Um, and that's a very difficult, hard sell. And quite frankly, that's going to create in inequities that the whole move away um, from uh, local funding was supposed, to, was supposed to solve in the first place and that you're going to get some districts that are going to pass those referenda um, and they're not going to be in as dire straits uh, and you're going to get others where it's going to be soundly defeated and we're going to have this uneven playing field again, which was the whole point of moving to the sales tax anyway. Um, I, I, it, it's definitely something that needs to be addressed, um, but I'm not hearing many things out of the state capital that leads me to believe that that's ever going to happen, unfortunately. It would solve a lot of problems. And I think the other side of the coin is the fact that you have uh, a portion of the Indiana citizenry that believes that the governor and the legislature did the right thing yeah. in cutting sales tax because that was an issue that they responded to. Um, I do think that Jonathan's right in the fact that when these school districts begin to respond regarding um, funding referendums within their local community, uh, because the funding mechanism is so complex and it is a, a constitutional uh, responsibility of the state to provide free public education in the state, you're going to see um, individual school communities begin to move. Uh, because of the passage of some of those ca uh, campaigns. You're going to see also some school districts fail because they weren't able to pass. And then – You think school corporations will go out of business, some of them? Well, I think in some in, – in some people's mind, that's not a bad thing. I mean, you know, it's, a, it's, it's laying an economic model to, to functioning schools. The problem with that is when you begin to build the inequity within a school structure – um, it comes back to a funding uh, equity and a litigation starts hitting the table again, much like you see across the country. All those things are very, very costly. Running campaigns are costly. Uh, uh, 
a failure of a campaign that you spend a lot of money, a lot of uh, human capital uh, trying to get it passed is expensive. And then I think once you have to deal with uh, those failures and the inequities it creates, uh, because in, in, in an ideal world, a child should not be punished in terms of the quality of education they get by the neighborhood they live in. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Kind of, so. One of the things we keep hearing here as we cover these issues is that Indiana is actually doing better off than all its neighbors and a lot of other states around the country. Is that true? Uh, you know, you mentioned posturing by uh, superintendents uh, around the state who are mad about the $300 million in cuts, but should they just be happy it wasn't $400, $500 million? Um, I don't know if they should be happy. Um, they should be happy they're not in California probably or Michigan or um, we could probably list a dozen, a dozen other states um, where it's a catastrophic situation um, where uh, even with the uh, stimulus money from the feds, uh, they just fell off a huge funding cliff. Um, uh, I mean what? Uh, not 20, 30 years ago, California probably had the best public school system in the entire world. Uh, no one claims that anymore. Um, and and these, these recent cuts are so catastrophic there. Um, I mean yeah. So I, uh, it's nice to be in a fiscally conservative state. Um, uh, uh, but you know, at the same time, I can understand superintendent and uh, uh, school board and teacher concerns um, in that you know, again, this probably didn't need to be as severe as it even was um, because of that funding mechanism switch. Um, I can understand why they're pretty angry about it. Um, and you know, uh, we see here in um, our local district, you know, uh, my daughter's school is losing its school librarian. She's fantastic. She does great things with those kids. Um, this is a state that needs to do better with um, elementary school reading and we have great media specialists in all of those uh, libraries in town who really work hard at that. Uh, those positions are gone now. Um, I, that, that is going to hurt us for a long, long time. Um, uh, so I certainly do not, do not mean to minimize the pain that people are feeling. I mean these are really painful cuts um, and again, uh, I do not think we've seen the last of them. Uh, and I, I concur with Jonathan. I, I just returned from Michigan and worked with the school district up there and uh, Michigan is as it appeared to, to me in observation is about five years out from where we are so we get to see a little glimpse into the future and it's not very uh, very exciting to be honest with you. I'm not sure anybody in Indiana wants to be Michigan. <laughs> no, I, I agree. I agree. But, you know, the, the one thing that we have in Indiana, we have uh, better school facilities, we have smaller class sizes and those kinds of things. And that's going to be a real struggle to maintain um, these types of programs with the funding cuts that we're facing. Well, we have reached the bottom of the hour here and we need to take a break here on Noon Edition. You can call us during that break and get your questions in for our experts. The phone number is 855-0811 if you're local to our Bloomington studios or you can call us toll-free from anywhere. No calls from, say, Saskatchewan lately. 877-285-9348 is that number or you can go to wfiu.org slash Noon Edition and leave a comment there. We'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Telephone Information at smithville.net and from Mother Bear's Pizza at motherbearspizza.com. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcasts. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, as well as movie, play, and opera reviews. Find out more by going to our website, WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? On Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, the WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting south-central Indiana. Listen at 8.33 a.m. and 5.45 p.m. every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to catch that day's feature. If you miss one, that's okay. They're archived on our website, WFIU.org. And the best features from each week can be heard Saturday mornings at 745. 
We are back here on Noon Edition. We're talking in studio with South Harrison School District Superintendent Neilan Clark and Jonathan Plucker, the director of Indiana University's Center for Evaluation and Education Policy. We're talking about education policy as it relates to this year's and upcoming legislative sessions. And we have our first phone caller of the afternoon. Paul is on the telephone. Paul, thanks for calling. Paul, are you there? I'm afraid we lost Paul. Paul, are you one more chance? You there? Well, oh shucks. Well, we'll hopefully Paul will call back. Um, while we while we have a second here, I, I want to know uh, one of the things that also passed this year is the the combination of the public uh, retirement public employees retirement fund and the teachers retirement fund, so that they invest as one unit. And the the goal of this, the lawmakers told us, was that you know maybe ten million dollars or more a year could be saved by the state. Um, I'll ask you first, Dr. Clark, do you think those savings will filter down to individual school corporations like your own in any meaningful way? Will it allow you to save jobs? Uh, Will it allow you to save money and move it to other places where you can use it more effectively? Those funds are primarily uh, for the purpose of uh, folks that are in the public sector or in the uh, education sector that are um, on the verge of retiring. It serves as their servants, uh, severance pays and, and retirement funds. So in terms of an operational aspect of the school district, they really will not provide a savings to us. Uh, the, on, the only exception to that statement would be that if um, districts across the state are looking at early retirement initiatives where they are paying uh, a fee for uh, uh, people on the top end of the scale to retire early, um, that allows us to hire young uh, graduating professionals into the system and they come in at a lesser cost. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a duplicate or a mirror of what industry has been doing for the last 15, 20 years. Yeah, um, uh, I think Dr. Clark's, Dr. Clark's point is a very good one. It um, uh, it could have a, a um, impact. It really is a longer term impact. You know, at the same time, uh, anything the state can do to become more efficient, um, I, I think, is a very good thing. Especially since if those types of programs suddenly become underfunded. Uh, that's another tax that essentially gets passed straight on to those school districts. Uh, they do not need that right now. Um, so anything that, that can be done um, in the uh, state house, quite frankly, um, to be more efficient at uh, that state level, um, if nothing else, it, it, it at least insulates districts from new costs, which I think is just critical right now. We can't be putting more on schools right now. It's just That's just not tenable. We have a phone caller. Uh, John is on the line. John, are you there? Yes. Um, It appears to me that both Daniels and Bennett are free market ideologues. Why should we doubt that trying to break the teachers' unions and to undermine public education wouldn't be part of their agendas? Jonathan, what do you think about that? Um, how come you always ask me first when we get a question like this? Um, <laughs> we bring you on because you're experts. That's why you're here. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, that's a pretty widely held view by many people. Um, uh, uh, I mean, the governor doesn't mince words when he talks about public um, public education. Um, so, I, I mean, I think that's a, a, a fair a fair criticism. Um, I, I don't think we know quite where uh, Dr. Bennett sits yet on some of these issues. Um, uh, he's certainly not a socialist. Um, I think that we can check that box off. Um, uh, how far he's willing to push free market ideologies and move to a, say, completely choice-based system, um, I just don't see that in my conversations with him. Uh, um, uh, but I mean, there's. I mean, uh, the governor loves to give interviews about how we need to just scrap public education and start all over again. So that, as far as I'm concerned, is a matter of public record. So I certainly can't argue with that at all. And I concur with Jonathan. Uh, the governor has been very clear in regard to his uh, his strong beliefs in the privatization of public education, and, and I too agree with Jonathan regarding Dr. Bennett's stance. Um, this debate uh, internal in, the, in our profession in the state is um, pretty heated and ongoing. Um, 
you know, the deregulation of public schools um, in regard to uh, some of the initiatives that have been proposed out there uh, is going to be uh, probably debated in, in legislative sessions uh, to come. So we'll just uh, keep, uh, keep our foot in, in the debate and uh, see where it goes. Thank you for your phone call, John. Uh, piggybacking on his question, uh, I wanted to ask uh, earlier, Jonathan, you said that uh, the switch to sales tax and the, you know not relying so much on property tax, do you think that's something that the governor foresaw and possibly wanted this to happen a little bit? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, there is a school of thought out there that this was very deliberate. Um, uh, I don't know. Um, uh, there were a lot of people involved with that with that switch beyond the governor um, um, uh, in both parties, um, many of which are very strong supporters of public education. So, um, uh, you know, just because it's a conspiracy theory doesn't mean it's not true. Um, uh, but I think it is a bit of a conspiracy theory. I, I, don't, I don't think anyone foresaw this. Um, it seems almost unthinkable you would deliberately torpedo public education. Uh, yeah, I mean to the tune of how many hundreds of millions of dollars um, – uh, I mean that's that's that would just be cruel. Um, uh, and you know, um, you know, I, for the record, um, uh, you know, I have no problem with some forms of uh, choice, especially public school um, choice. Uh, but at the same time, um, some of the criticisms that we're hearing out of what John, I believe, called free market people. Um, uh, uh, I, I really do think um, are a little thin in substance, um, uh, especially our suburban schools in this state. Uh, I think quite frankly are world-class public schools. Um, uh, the schools in Bloomington, the schools in South Harrison, we have some great schools. Um, uh, and like we were saying, there are lots of parents in lots of other states who would uh, kill to send their kids to Indiana quality <laughs> schools. And I think that's really important to keep in mind. Um, I'm not buying some of the criticism from the um, uh, sort of the conservative uh, right on uh, on the fact that Indiana schools just aren't very good. I mean, do we have urban school problems? Yes, we do like every other state, um, like every other country to be frank about it. Um, do we have some rural school issues in Indiana? Absolutely. Um, but we have some great urban schools and we have some great rural schools. And I really do think in general we have world-class suburban schools. Um, um, so just some of these – some some of the posturing that um, – that we tend to hear about how we really need to rethink education from the you know top down. I uh, I just don't get it. I just don't see the data. I, I understand the political arguments, but I, I think people are just flat out wrong about that. So, what uh, what if anything needs to be done during next year's session? I mean, if if the both of you are turned you know education lobbyists and we send you to the state house next year for a day or a week or whatever. Um, what is your number one thing you would like lawmakers and the governor to hear that would improve the education as far as you're concerned? And, and Dr. Clark, we'll, we'll start with you on this one. What would you tell the governor and, and lawmakers that would help the South Harrison School Corporation? Well, I think a, a number of things have to occur. Number one, we need to seek out and establish a fairly stable source of revenue to our schools. Uh, you know, I don't know exactly what that is, but that's a task force study that needs to be out there and get us ready because sales tax in this economy is not a stable uh, uh, form of support to public service and education. I think the other thing you need to be very, very careful of and, and uh, one of the things that the governor has been very clear is that he feels that there's too many small, very alterable small school districts in the state of Indiana. We have about 292 school districts. Some of those school districts are less than 1,000 students, less than 500 students. And in the governor's mind, um, he feels the consolidation of those schools into larger, more productive uh, structures uh, is, is relevant. If we're going to do that, rather than starve the schools to death, I think we need to flip the flip the charter a little bit and build an economic incentive within the funding formula for those communities to then join and consolidate their schools. Give them a five-year period where they get a boost in their um, their budget for consolidating because there are some costs associated with that. 
Uh, there are some adjustments that have to be made on the local level regarding where those kids go to school and that type of thing. And, and quite honestly, when you begin to do those things, it's very, very um, – uh, unsettling to the individual communities because they're losing a community center at their school. And so rather than than setting sanctions on the schools, we need to start looking at a proactive, um, pro-incentive way to get school districts to to buy into that, 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 uh, that formula. The other thing of it is we need to continue the study on the – the efficiency and the effectiveness of our costs and our program productivity within the public schools across the state. I think we're definitely going to see a big push for uh, school consolidation. Um, they've tried to be a little bit gentle with it um, in only a few just uh, in, um, in only a few smaller smaller districts. Just a, a couple, I think, have really have really explored um, whether they should be consolidating. Um, you know, part of the problem is that one of the things that the governor pushed as the best indicator for whether people should consolidate was the percent of revenue they spend on classroom instruction. Um, uh, well, unfortunately for consolidation proponents, um, uh, the districts that tend to spend the highest percentage of their revenue on classroom, instu- classroom instruction tend to be our smallest districts. Um, so by the metric that the governor himself has pushed, um, the, most, the most efficient schools are the ones he's saying need to be consolidated because they're not efficient. Um, there are uh, lots of reasons to consolidate. Um, uh, but I just – I think that's going to be a very nasty battle fought. I don't think there's any way that we're going to avoid it next time around. Um, uh, you know, but I, I – you know, I, a school, a public school especially, especially in a smaller community um, really is the fabric in some cases that holds that county together in many ways, holds that community together. Um, a school consolidation uh, – a school district consolidation needs to be taken very, very seriously. Um, and it has to be done very carefully. And I just hope that the legislature keeps that in mind um, if they do decide to move from the carrot to the stick stick approach, which I, I – especially if we have even greater revenue shortfalls, which again looks like it's, like, like it's happening. Um, I don't see how we get around school consolidation and it's, it's – that's, that's, that's going to be the battle I think next time around. This fall, there will be referenda around the state to help fill in some of the holes that were created by the $300 million in cuts. How far do you think these will go? Is this a one-time thing or is this kind of the new norm? Is this them adjusting to the way things are going to be? Well, I think that's – it's the wave of the future. Um, two things that are going to happen in my mind in the future and that is you're going to see school districts that are – um, and again, go back to what Jonathan talked about, the small community that's very united and, and the, the school is the, the, the backbone of the community. They have a much more likelihood to pass that referendum within that community than a larger, more comprehensive school district. That's number one. The, the, the number two thing that I think you're going to see in the future is you're going to see uh, school districts starting to vie for each other's students. Um, they'll have programs or whatever, and some of the changes in the transfer tuition and and the transfer students, uh, and and that's something I picked up in my recent trip to uh, observing schools in Michigan. They are literally marketing for kids, and you're going to see that uh, in the future in Indiana because for every student that comes to the door, there is a state support to that student. And if you get enough of those, uh, you can start driving certain programs. So I think what you're going to see is referendums – um, they're going to go up and they're going to go down. There's going to be a lot of effort, a lot of money spent on them. Uh, I'm not sure it's the best methodology, but it's it's the way of the future. Yeah, um, uh, we're going to see a ton of them. Uh, we're going to start seeing them soon, actually. Um, some people do them around primary day. Some will do special uh, special votes over the summer from what I'm hearing. We'll see a lot in uh, – um, November. November. And this is uh, this is a really poisonous political atmosphere to go out for a referendum. Um, uh, uh, the national health care debate has not created the most bipartisan, lovey-dovey feelings that I've ever seen in this country. Um, uh, Indiana is is certainly in the middle of that. We're not different in any way, shape, or form. So um, this is this is a tough time for. To, to be going out and asking people to give back some of that huge property tax cut. Um, uh, uh, and, and I, you know, again, um, 
uh, I realize that the past is the past, um, but we created this problem and it's an expensive problem that people have to solve and these are not cheap campaigns to run, um, especially if they're not successful. You've essentially lost a lot of extra money um, and I, I, I just uh, – I'm hopeful but I'm not optimistic. It's going to be a very difficult – um, it's, it's a very difficult way to fix a bigger property tax problem. And again, it's going to create more inequity than we maybe even had to begin with, which was the whole point of moving away from it. I mean this was, this was a predictable outcome, which is why I'm so disappointed. If you have a question or a comment, you can call us up here. It's 855-0811 or one 285 wfiu One other thing on this November's uh, ballot is the uh, – property tax caps uh, being added to the state constitution. Uh, in Bloomington here, we're seeing people saying vote uh, no on this and they're primarily education-minded. Are, are we going to see the opposition to the property tax caps going into the constitution mostly being an education-backed uh, contingent? Um, I, uh, I'll be surprised if it doesn't pass. Um, if it doesn't go into the uh, Constitution, I think that's the way that the winds are blowing. Um, my fear as a researcher is that this is what California did and it was the first in a long, slow slide, the first, the first of many steps that put their, their public school system in really dire, dire straits. Um, uh, if those caps go into place, that is going to happen here. I, I just – I mean we've seen other states do it um, and just the whole, the whole property versus uh, sales tax issue. Um, we've seen other states do this. I mean other states have experienced this. This wasn't Indiana blazing a trail and we didn't know what, what, what could possibly happen. Um, if anything, states have been trying to move away from sales tax-based education uh, um, uh, funding because it's so unstable and it creates these huge peaks and these massive valleys. Um, uh, so I, I, I think it would probably not be good for the state as a whole, um, but I, I, I'll be surprised if it doesn't pass. And to answer your question uh, in terms of the directness of education, is it an education issue? It is. And I think it will be billed as an education issue because many of the school districts have already begin, begun to calculate what the cap will do for them in 2010, 2011, 2012. Um, and we, we know, for example, we have the calculations. And like Jonathan said, this is going to escalate and accelerate this issue of inequity because in my district, for example, um, the cap will be um, a reduction of about $12,000 to our district. My neighboring district gets a half a million dollar reduction. And so there's you, – you begin to see this inequity of what happens when you start accelerating this reduction of revenue that comes through your door. So I, 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 I'm like uh, Jonathan. If you don't have to look very far. California is a prime example. Uh, that we're following that path and it's not a very, very good one. Does that mean that superintendents like yourself might come the beginning of next school year or um, maybe just before Halloween this year start sending out notes to parents or something like that saying, I just want you to know that this is how we feel? I mean, are you going to be proactive based on – I mean, we've had a number of superintendents now who all point out we're going to lose a whole bunch of money because this is happening. But yet we've had a real hard time getting anybody on the record who says I'm going to be proactive about telling people this is what's going on and telling parents and telling voters that this issue plays out in the way that it's going to play out in November. Um, will you be one of the first to go on the record here and say you'll send out a note to parents or something like that telling them what this means for you? Well, I, uh, I think in response to that, I, no, I won't probably be the first on record. But, <laughs> but uh, I, as educators, we're not very good politicians. That's number one. Number two, uh, will we share that information with our, uh, our parents and our constituents? Yeah, we probably will, but we'll do it through our PTOs and uh, our parent organization groups and, and our community rotary clubs and those kinds of things. Uh, the one thing that we do as superintendents do fairly diligently – is uh, through John Ellis and our state superintendent association, and we work very, very hard to to make sure that we're all 
speaking from the same platform, so to speak. Um, we all have representatives and state senators in our communities. Uh, we're all pretty good about, you know, taking those guys into a meeting and saying, hey, here's the impact. Here's the impact in South Harrison. Here's the impact in Monroe County. Here's the impact in a New Albany Floyd County, for example. So we'll be uh, – and that, quite frankly, that's already started. I mean, it started almost the day of the adjournment of the legislature. We're already out there having those conversations with our legislators. So uh, in terms of the big – fam- But the legislators are the ones who voted for this <coughs> referendum in November. I am are sure. they the right people to be talking to? <laughs> well, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, um, how we will go about that will be uh, pretty much individual by community to community. You know, I would think that in New Albany, Floyd County or a, a neighboring school district that's getting hit by the cap of a half a million dollars is going to be a, a lot more – um, intense about their dialogue with their constituents and a South Harrison who's going to get hit by $12,000. So, but, but again, we all share in the pain. You brought up a New Albany Floyd County. Uh, my sister's a teacher down there and instead of laying teachers off, they're of course uh, closed for elementary schools. Uh, my mother's a teacher at, in Greater Clark and my uncle's a superintendent. So I hear a lot about education from my family. <laughs> and one of the things they're more afraid of than anything is, you know, maybe not next year, maybe not the year after that, but where this is going in 10, 20, 40 years, the fallout from not only these cuts but the funding structures in place now. So, uh, you know, to sort of wrap the show up a little bit, we only have a few minutes here. If you could look into a crystal ball of sorts, uh, what do you see happening in a decade and 30, 40 years? How do you think education will look then? Yeah, um, uh, I don't think there's any question um, that we're going to look back in even 10 years and public schooling is going to look very different than it does now. Um, I mean, it's just it's it's going to have to, um, uh, in part because we keep asking schools to address all these societal problems. Um, every single session of the legislature, there's new requirements passed about. Um, I, I, Nalen would know these off the top of his head, but there's all these small things where really the schools are are, are asked to solve lots of society's problems. Um, uh, at a time uh, we're doing that with one hand and on the other hand, we're taking uh, lots of money away from schools at the same time. Um, We need to make some very tough decisions here about what we really want schools to do. Um, uh, And if – and I personally don't have any problem with the idea of a full-service community school. uh, But that school is trying to solve all the world's problems. That's going to cost money. Um, and if you don't want to give that money, we can't ask all the great educators we have in the state to shoulder that burden. It's just not going to work. Um, uh, and it, it just, it's it's kind of like watching two trains head at each other at top speed. Um, there's, there's no way it's not going to be messy. Uh, we, we have got to find – we have to find a way to reorganize or change our priorities um, come up with more stable funding streams. Um, if we don't, uh, I'm not optimistic. I'm not optimistic at all. Um, uh, but this is a state that's dug down deep when it's had to and figured ways out of complex problems before. Um, so I'm not going to be completely pessimistic. But um, uh, I, 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 this really is, um, I think, a really – and I'm not saying it's our, our last chance. Uh, but it's a very important window for us to try to make some of these structural changes. And these are going to be very difficult choices for people. This, this, this is not going to be pleasant, I don't think. Well, I'm like Jonathan. We, um, we have a lot of wonderful people in our profession uh, from the classroom all the way to the leadership. And um, I think you're going to see some out-of-the-box type of thinking. Uh, in terms of the changes, our schools are going to change this summer. I mean we are, we are already changing. Uh, the types of reductions and the reallocations of resources. I think you'll see a much fewer, a much fewer school districts across the state um, conduct their traditional summer school programs like they've done in the past. You're going to see things go virtual. You're going to see a, a lot of online stuff. Um, school districts are going to be leaner and meaner in some respects. Uh, but I think like Jonathan, we're going to look back five, ten years from now and we're going to go, wow. That was a very turbulent and and uh, messy time, uh, but in terms of the faith of the district uh, across the state and the state as a whole in terms of education policy, um, I'll put my faith in, in those that teach. Uh, that we have tremendous teachers in the, in this in the state. Um, we've got some great leadership, and uh, it won't look the same. 
but in terms of the quality program we provide a child, it'll be there. You mentioned competition among schools in Michigan uh, and uh, that was one of the things I was thinking about leading up to this program was if we if we get to a point where we understand there are going to be inequities between school districts and we understand some are more efficient than others, is there a school of thought which says competition might not be the worst thing in the world because the economic model, of course, says competition builds a cheaper, better product over the course of time? Could it work with school corporations too if we give them some sort of incentive um, and, and we've talked about incentives you said maybe for the, the five years out if you're going to consolidate something. Could we offer some similar incentive um, to say we want you to compete to be the best you can and is there anything necessarily wrong with that in a minute each? Uh, in 60 seconds. Um, no, there's not anything wrong with that. Uh, um, my uh, center actually helps the U.S. Department of um, Education administer some of their public school choice programs, including a big one in Michigan. Um, uh, and I think there's two important things that I've come away with from those experiences that especially public school choice, um, public school competition, uh, if done right, can be a very good thing. It really, really can be. Um, uh, the second thing is it's a lot harder than people think it is because kids aren't widgets. Kids are kids and that's our focus like Nayland said earlier is to help kids. That is the sole purpose of education as far as I'm concerned. We need to help kids make their lives better. Um, kids aren't products uh, and I think some competition advocates take that way too far. But I do think that there is a healthy middle ground that uh, again, we're, we're just going to have to move to here. Um, and again, uh, concur with Jonathan in regard to uh, the choice. The entrepreneur model laid on top of a school public si system uh, is not a perfect fit. But there are components within it uh, like public choice that can make it work and, and enhance what we have. But, but it is very, very complicated as he's, he says. And a lot of folks, including some of my colleagues, think that you can go into this and pretty well do it fairly quickly and expeditiously, and it takes a tremendous amount of study, planning, and implementation. So broadly, as we as we end here, uh, can we can we leave people who are listening to this program with some reason to be optimistic about what can be changed, or what can we, or what we can do in either the coming legislative session or the next five or ten years? Is there a way that? There is a positive outcome here either for the state or for even individual school districts? Um, I think you hit it a while ago. You need to be informed and you need to be involved. And uh, if you have questions in regard to your local public schools or the state policies in general, uh, you need to uh, make the call, uh, sit down with the local officials or state officials and uh, f find out what the real issues and the impacts are and be a part of the process of the solution, not the problem. Um, there's a big referendum coming up for in almost any school district where someone is sitting and listening to us. Um, get involved, uh, study um, what the major issues are and talk to your friends, especially those that don't have kids um, uh, or at least don't have kids still in the public schools. Uh, to impress upon them the importance of the fact that the state's not going to solve this problem for us. It really has to be solved locally at this point. I really think that that's the best first step. I think that's a good place to leave it. Well, our thanks to Neyland Clark and to Jonathan Plucker for being our guests today. You guys have been great. Thanks so much. For Ariana Prothero and Mike Pashkash up in the booth, we thank them. For Daniel Robison, I am Stan Dostrebsky saying thank you for listening to Noon Edition. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bear's Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering pizzas, pasta dinners, and wings with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com, 332-4495 for delivery. <laughs>